Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The United States of America, have you been paying attention? It wasn't just the indictment this week, the last 24 hours. There's just been a swirling of kickback from the former president who stands indicted. It is, it's very, very hard to keep up. But yesterday we learned the Department of Justice had issued that they wanted a protective order. The judge is giving the former president until tomorrow at five to respond. But wait, there have been all cap tweets attacking Mike Pence, the judge, the city of D.C. This has got to be a provocation. Then what do we do? What does it stand for? You know, you read social media. People are feeling this. Could there be a way out of this that makes a country heal? A piece in the messenger, throwing it out there and saying, should former President Donald Trump be offered a plea deal? What would it look like? Would he take it? Would it heal the country? It is by political analyst Doug Schoen and former Congressman John LeBoutlier. John LeBoutlier joining us live. Thank you, John, for being here. Well, thanks for asking me on, Arlene. Good afternoon. Oh, what an afternoon, John. Back and forth and back and forth. And, uh, you know, I'm checking here as we're in the the break. And yes, there's more coming from Donald Trump. What are we seeing here? Before we get into your suggestion of a plea deal, let's talk about the problem a little bit. It's really just been amplified over the last 24 hours after a week that just surged it to international historical headlines, John. Well, that's true. And this is the third indictment uh, in the last four months, of course, with another one looming any day in Atlanta, Georgia, which I think we think is coming. So let's just look at the big picture. You've got the leading candidate for the Republican Party, and I'm a Republican, and um, the leading candidate to be nominated is obviously Donald Trump. And uh, he will be under indictment. Let's assume there are four of them. And there's going to be one or two or more trials this coming year, 2024, during the election. So that that by itself, obviously, we've never had a president or former president indicted. And here he is under four indictments while he's running for president again. Uh, What is that going to do to the world, but to the United States specifically in an election year where You know, there are eight or nine other people running against him in the Republican Party. Well, none of them get any oxygen at all now. You never really hear them talk about anything. They get asked about Trump. I'm sure they love the idea that they have their own career, been a governor or senator or something, 
They're running for president, but they only get asked about Trump. They don't get asked about what they've All right, done. so the plea deal, you're suggesting if there was a deal that could heal the country here, and you know, John, I do not agree with this. I'll be very upfront, and you know I don't because you and I chat about this stuff all the time. Uh, I think there should be accountability. There is, uh, these are serious charges. They're historical, overthrowing an election. Tell us the details of how you think this plea deal could appease people like me. I'm not American, so I don't count, but my opinion is, is surely out there. And those who just want it to be over. Well, you know, because part of talking about this thing is, the notion that Donald Trump would be convicted and sentenced to jail and actually put in jail. And a lot of people in America uh, are aghast at the thought of a former president being, being behind bars. Or how would that work? Washington Post has a story out this weekend that he's got lifetime Secret Service protection surrounding him. How is that going to work if he's put in prison? So, that, you know, there are all these questions that we don't know, and all of it is sucking the oxygen out of the politics that would take place normally, where we would debate the war in Ukraine. Should we do more yeah. or less to help? But people Ukraine? are in a frenzy here. This is a They're enormous a charge. And, and John, right. you know, you, you're you following this. It's not as if you want to, to let him off the hook here. I want to tell our listeners that. You do not. What could the deal look like well, that would make deal. things Setting happen. up the scene of the deal. So the, to me and to Doug Schoen, we wrote this together, the, the deal is uh, called a universal plea agreement where Donald Trump and all the prosecutors involved, and there are two different states, New York and Georgia, on the state level, of course, and Jack Smith doing both Mar-a-Lago and the election of 2020 and January 6th, that one, they would make an agreement. And the agreement would be that Donald Trump would plead guilty in each case and would admit his responsibility and guilt in each case. And in return for that, and and along with that, he'd have to withdraw from the presidential race and uh, forswear ever running for office again. In return for that, the prosecutors would go to the judges assigned to each case and ask that Donald Trump uh, not be put behind bars. He would be uh, guilty. He would have pled guilty to multiple felonies in four different jurisdictions. So that's the accountability. He is guilty. He admits he's guilty and he can't run for office again. But he's not in jail. He's out of the scene. He's off playing golf for the rest of his life at Mar-a-Lago. And both parties and the country can move on post-Trump. Okay. And that, I think, I, we is know, the most healing okay. we could do. Okay. We know that it isn't just Donald Trump. We've got MAGA-ism, Trumpism, a lot of people jumping in. Lessons have been learned that this seems to work. We're watching him push back against the Department of Justice and test the Department of Justice here. Do you really think that he would abide by this? He was told by the judge just days ago, you can't do this, and he's doing it. What makes you think? 
that that would work. Well, if, if, if this deal that I just outlined to you, if he accepted the deal, uh, there would still be a check on his behavior, which is the four cases would still be sitting there. They would be suspended, not ended. He would have pled guilty. If he violates the agreement, a judge could throw him in jail the next day. He's, he's, a, he's a guilty. He's a felon. He's pled guilty. All we're waiting for is sentencing. And the sentence that he's given is no jail time as long as he honors the agreement. And I think that is possible. And it, this is not going to happen until Donald Trump realizes he is screwed and that he is. Do you think he's trouble. screwed, John? I do. do. You think he's I think screwed? he's screwed. I think this weekend's <laughs> outburst that you outlined in all caps every hour or two yesterday <laughs> and today, he realizes he's screwed. And he's already told us, yeah. I'm going to try to get rid of the mm-hmm. Judge Chuckin. Good luck. That's not happening. I'm going to try to get it moved out of Washington. Good luck. That is not happening. All the things he's flailing around about are not going to happen. He committed, oh, excuse me, he allegedly committed these crimes in Washington, D.C., and in our system, I'm sure yours too, you get tried where the crimes allegedly took place, and that's in Washington, D.C. Labor. Strife. Seeing things. I started the show today with a sense that things are changing. It sure is changing in the labor world. We've had a changing of power. We're seeing grocery workers flex their muscles. They want more. They're walking the streets. They're on the bricks. We've just seen the port strike cost Canada a lot of money. We saw the CRA strike. There is a sense that there is a new power to workers in Canada. And some are flexing it, and others got to be waiting in the weeds. What is this new landscape we're seeing? Simon Black, an associate professor on labor studies at Brock University, joining us live. Simon, good afternoon. Good afternoon. What are we seeing here? I've never seen grocery workers go out on strike, but we've seen the trajectory of it going through the pandemic. And then um, they got extra pay, got taken away. We see how much we rely on them. We're also seeing this kind of power move in so many ways. Would you call it a labor revolution? How would you view it, Simon, in your studies? I think we're not there yet in terms of a a labor revolution, but it is somewhat of a reckoning. I think for historical context, we're nowhere near the levels of strike activity we saw in the 1970s or 80s or mid-1940s. However, I think there's a kind of convergence of factors that have led to an uptick in in strike activity. Um, The recent jobs reports suggest the Canadian economy has actually shed jobs, but we've experienced tight labor markets, relatively low unemployment, which means workers are less feel fearful of, of losing their jobs and more willing to make demands of their employers because there's no, there's, they know there's alternatives in the labor market. I think second, we've experienced uh, a, a period of prolonged inflation, which has only started to decline in the last few months. And workers have seen their real wages decline and their purchasing power has significantly eroded. The price of groceries, gas, housing, the cost of living has been skyrocketing. And yet corporate profits in some industries, including in grocery, has been robust. So I think there's good evidence that corporate profits and not worker wages have contributed to uh, disproportionately to inflation. But then third, as you mentioned in your comments just now, it was the experience of the pandemic. 
essential workers, which include grocery store workers and port workers who are on strike in BC, they continued to work on site at significant risk to their health throughout the pandemic. Their employers have done well in terms of their bottom lines, and they continue to do well. And now they're facing these employers at the bargaining table, and employers seem reluctant to reward workers for these sacrifices. So when you add it all up, record corporate profits, the cost of living crisis, tight labor markets, and uh, leftover kind of resentment and uh, anger from the pandemic, I think it's a recipe for strikes. It is. And somebody has to pay. How far do you think this is going to go? As you say, it is a reckoning. Is there going to be a correction there? The power structure of change, you could feel it right after the pandemic. And those who work in those industries, they feel it too. I mean, there are restaurants, as you know, I know, in cities all across North America that cannot even open in the evening or on the weekends. I'm talking here from Atlantic Canada, some of the places I want to go to, they say, we can't open it night. There's nobody who will take those jobs. So we've got a a different way of flaunting that kind of power, Simon. What does it it mean for the country here? Yeah, well, I think if we talk about, uh, when we talk about a labor shortage and certain sectors, uh, like the restaurant sector, looking for workers and not being able to find them, we have to ask, you know, what are the conditions under which people are going to accept work? If we want to see an industry uh, like the restaurant sector offering good jobs to people at livable wages with benefits, then I think a sector will have no trouble kind of attracting workers. The question is not if we have a shortage of workers, do we have a shortage of good jobs? Um, In other sectors, I think we'll continue to see as collective agreements uh, expire in, in highly unionized sectors and industries, um, we're, we're probably going to see more workers who are trying to catch up in terms of the cost of living and the loss of uh, their purchasing power and probably exercising their collective muscle via the strike and, and making demands of their employers, not only for better working conditions, but for, for wages that can help them, you know, pay the rent afford the mortgage and, 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 uh, really just make ends meet at the end of the month. Perfect storm, as you describe it. And what does it do about people's mentality about work? It, does it make them, this, this power, make them feel differently about that employee-employer relationship, do you think? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it can be very kind of sector-specific, but if, if workers um, are looking at these, these strikes that are kind of been high profile in the last weeks and months in Canada, they can learn lessons from the experiences of other workers, even across sectors. You know, for unionized workers, they they may look at a successful strike in which a union has made gains in terms of wages and better benefits and more job security. And they may think to themselves, well, you know, maybe, maybe we need to go on strike as well. But for workers who are not members of the union, they might be thinking, you know, maybe I need to join a union too. So, you know, it can have it can have what we call a a kind of contagion effect in terms of strikes uh, that other workers can look to successful strikes and think that they need to go on strike in order to to keep up with the cost of living. And then for non-union workers, including in an industry like the restaurant industry, they might be thinking, well, you know, if for me to to catch up and to keep up, I'm going to need to uh, to form a union in my workplace. So these are some of the impacts that it can have on the broader economy 
and and beyond these particular strikes that we've seen, like the Metro Grocery Strike or the Windsor Salt Mine Strike or the or the BC Port Worker Strike. Simon, what struck you about the port strike? And uh, before we went to break, as I mentioned, we saw the union say, "Okay, looks good," and then the workers going, "Not so fast. That doesn't happen often." That's right, Arlene. It, and we've actually seen this in a, in a few labor disputes of late: Windsor Salt Mine, the BC Port Strike, and in Metro, the Metro Grocery Strike in the GTA. In all of those strikes, union members have actually rejected tentative agreements that were recommended to them by their bargaining committees and union leadership. And like you say, this is is relatively uncommon in Canada's labor relations regime. And I think what it shows is that workers have raised expectations and are are willing to fight. And perhaps that unions uh, need to be more ambitious at the bargaining tables, given the cost of living crisis that workers are experiencing. I think there's other lessons from the BC port strike in particular, also in the ways in which kind of politicians reacted to it and the way Mm -hmm. it was was covered in the media. Um, There was a lot of talk about the economic impact of the strike, and no doubt it did have an impact. It was massive. It was massive. Mm -hmm. It was. There was less actual talk about the economic impact of declining real wages on workers, of increased precariousness in their employment, the economic impact of contracting out good jobs in the uh, in the BC ports, what the e- economic impact was on the workers and what they were standing and fighting for. And, uh, you know, the federal government did kind of weigh in on the side of, of, of the employer in that strike in, in some kind of obvious ways and some not so obvious. But, um, you know, I think politicians who talk about growing or rebuilding the middle class, who are kind of lukewarm or downright opposed to workers' right to strike, um, kind of historically we know there's no growing the middle class without unions and collective bargaining and potentially strikes as disruptive as they may be. And what we've seen in the past 40 years is as the share of workers in the economy has declined, um, the share of unionized workers in the economy has declined, then the share of market income really going to the top 1% and top 10% of income earners has increased. So we can't be concerned about income and wealth inequality um, and can't be concerned about the, the health of the middle class without also you know, not being concerned about the health of our labor movement and our unions. Yeah, you know, it's a dilemma for governments, isn't it? It is a lot of money. It affects the whole country, as you were talking about uh, the workers, but it does affect the whole country. It's adding up. You got to keep you got to keep things rolling. And every single government, when we watch these kind of strikes that paralyze a certain industry, and let's face it, the supply chain has been just tried and tested and really stuck after and during the pandemic. So you can see that there's pressure on them. But uh, Simon, as, as you're saying, the, the workers are calling attention to things. And some of the many of the things that you talk about, too, have been things that have mentioned before. How much does the unemployment rate affect this? Because usually when workers are, dig their heels in, they have to know they can't be replaced. They have to know that they've got bargaining power. We've got a very low unemployment rate. How does that factor into this? Yeah, it does factor it into it a great deal. And not only in a unionized workplace, but also in non-union workplaces. So, you know, in terms of the unionized workplace, when workers go out on strike and 
the unemployment is low, um, you know, what can happen is that, you know, when it comes to trying to replace uh, those workers who are on strike, an employer bringing in scabs might have difficulty doing just that, finding workers to cross a picket line and uh, act as replacement workers or scabs for those workers who are on strike and, and keeping that particular uh, workplace uh, business or whatever it is going. Um, but the, the kind of shortage of workers can also impact uh, non-union workplaces too. And, you know, an individual, usually when they have a, a decision to make about whether they want to continue working for an employer in which they're not satisfied with the, either the working conditions, the benefits of the wages, their only real choice is to, is to exit, right? To leave that job, to, to go look elsewhere. And when there's more alternative jobs out there, then workers might feel a bit more confident in making a demand of an employer, even if they're not in the union for, for a better wage or better treatment, knowing that they might be able to cross the road and uh, get a job elsewhere. So it does have an impact. Um, but again, we've seen in the, in the latest jobs report from Statistics Canada, the economy actually shed jobs in the, in the, last, uh, the last month or so. So this period of uh, low unemployment might be coming to an end, and that's partly a result of the, the Bank of Canada's interest rate increases and trying to, trying to bring uh, inflation uh, to a heel. It is. And let's talk about the political. You raised it, uh, you know, that in that the impression was that the government had weighed in on on the side of the company. Now, we have uh, politics connected with the labor movement. Simon, I was saying as I was teasing what we were going to be talking with you earlier in the show, it is an unusual time because now we have the conservatives going after the same union workers that used to be just the privy of the left here in Canada. How has that changed the power structure here? Yeah, I think that the in terms of the power structure, you know, labor in terms of politics is Part of the, at least some of the labor movement has always had a very strong affiliation to the, to the NDP. Um, I, I think that's changed in the last, uh, the last decade or so. Um, I, think, I think more unions are taking a kind of what we might call a transactional approach to, uh, to politics. Um, they want to get the, the most um, regard, for their members, regardless of, of who's in power in government at the time. So they don't want to be seen to be close to too close to one particular party or, or, or another. Um, there's many unions who remain a very strong affiliation to the NDP, but the, the conservatives in particular under Pierre Polyver um, and, and under previous, under previous uh, leaders, at least at the federal level have always, have always had a very kind of hostile approach to, to, uh, to unions, to trade unions. But at the same time, they're, they're kind of talking up support for the broader working class. And really, that just doesn't jibe. It's, you know, if you're concerned about workers' wages, if you're concerned about working conditions, if you're concerned about precarious employment, if you're concerned about workers falling behind in terms of the cost of living, then again, you've got to be concerned about the health of the, health of the labor movement. So you can't have a politician uh, on, on one hand talking about they're the, they're the new party of the working class, as, as mm-hmm. some conservatives like to say, um, but at the same time, you know, wanting to limit or restrict uh, workers' constitutional rights to strike or to form a union.
All right, Simon, we're going to have to uh, take a break in just over a minute. I do want to throw to you at the end here. What do you say? As you just mentioned, uh, there could be an economic downturn. They sure hope and they want us to go through a little pain to get that inflation down. How could this affect the, the urgency as we see these workers jump in? Could there be a fear that they could be losing their power? Yeah, indeed. I think that's I think that's a very real possibility. It could be like you like you mentioned, Arlene, a kind of perfect storm right now in terms of for workers exercising their collective muscle via the strike. But if interest rates continue to have the impact in the economy that the Bank of Canada wants them to have in terms of slowing things down, um, then with rising unemployment, this could be a kind of fleeting window for for labor in this in this country to be exercising its muscle. And uh, if we do enter into a recession, whether it be a short one or a prolonged one, that will definitely have an impact on, on how working people who are unionized, uh, how working people um, come to decision about going on. All right. Uh, because it's not an easy decision. To no, none of it is easy. It's fascinating yeah. to watch. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. There used to be such a draw and an enigma connected with hosting big sporting events. It was huge. I mean, as my uh, career as a journalist, I can't remember how many times that I have watched the millions and millions of dollars get into a bid to host the Olympic Games. Well, now we have Alberta dumping out of the Commonwealth Games, and they're not alone. Australia dumped out of the 2026 saying... They didn't want to do it, and it makes you wonder if the glow has gone off, the joy of hosting these games. Is the the money connected to it? As the Premier said, it's just not a good deal for Alberta. And we have seen those who have accepted the, the huge bills that go along with these things. It used to be worth it, and you'd see all the economic impact of of image and tourism, all those things, clearly not enough. And more and more of these reports are coming out. We're going to talk about how it may play out in the longer landscape of sports and sponsorship by cities and some solutions too. Moshe Lander joining us live, economics professor, Concordia University. Moshe, good afternoon. Thank you for being Hello. here. Hello. 
All right. Is this a surprise to you or do you get it more and more? I remember the first time we started seeing the cities kind of back out and say no, especially when it came to the Olympics. It was a bit of a shock. There was nothing more prestigious. And now the Commonwealth Games, and I'm reading about this decision, the reaction to it right now in the BBC International News, Moshe. Yeah, and and it's different with Australia compared to Alberta. Australia had already been awarded the Games, and they were three years out from hosting. And as they were getting ready for the Games, they said, we can't afford this anymore. So they're half complete. Uh, At least Alberta had the common sense to say, we're not even going to bid, because they understood that if they had bid, they were going to win because of a lack of competition, because nobody wants to host this thing. So good that they came to their senses at the beginning and said, no, thanks. When it comes to the Commonwealth Games, though, there's nobody bidding for 2030. That's just kind of unheard of. What happened here? Yeah, it's it's an increasing trend that's been happening for about 30 years now, where yeah. you're seeing cities or countries not wanting to host these things. Every time that you see a Brazil, a South Africa, that's left with a tremendous amount of debt and a tremendous amount of infrastructure that they spent on that's not being used the way they had imagined... Uh, countries just say, you know what, we don't want to do this anymore. And so uh, all you're left with essentially are autocratic regimes or countries where you really don't care about what the taxpayer has to say. Uh, You mentioned earlier about the idea of prestige. How many of us in the world would have heard of Sarajevo back in the 1980s, if not for the Olympics? But now those cities are easily understood, captured, heard of uh, through social media or through slick advertising campaigns. So the prestige that came with holding these events is disappearing because you could spend that money on a good advertising campaign. You could. You just get some crazy balloon and send it all over. It could go viral all over the world or whatever. Moshe, is that changing it? You've just raised a fascinating point here. Is the new reality, here we have it again, how you can get your message out that we don't have to have these big events tied around our ankles? Yeah, and and it's also that the sports themselves are starting to get a little bit tainted, right? We have like the Lance Armstrongs, uh, (laughs) you know, in cycling that, again, how many North Americans would be paying attention to cycling if not for him? And then when he's disgraced by, uh, you know, drug cheating and and being very abusive towards people who would accuse him of that, uh, you know, all of a sudden we're, we're not really watching amateur athletics anymore. If you've seen uh, Icarus on Netflix, right, and taking a look at how state doping is is playing out these days, it's kind of hard to want to spend billions of dollars to host something when you're going to have the disgrace. How many people remember the Seoul Olympics for the Seoul Olympics or because of Ben Johnson? It is. And I remember the Ben Johnson story. It kind of, we all wondered, is this is going to change? And it really, you're absolutely right. It's hung around and hung around. So uh, the, the glow is off, as we say. There's no more prestige, but it's still kind of there. Cities are, are tempted. This pullout from Alberta may send a larger message, though, don't you think? Because they're just saying it, as you just said, before they're awarding it, no way, we're out of here. Yeah, and, and Alberta spent a huge amount of money on their Alberta calling uh, campaign for trying to draw people in Canada and outside of Canada to come to Alberta. And so they probably realized they could dump a lot more money into that. Uh, than hosting the, Olymp- uh, the, the, the Commonwealth Games. But, you know, I, I think in general, the message is being sent that really this is probably an event whose time is up. 
And so where maybe the World Cup will continue on uh, without maybe the same sort of difficulties, uh, it, it should also be a, a scary prospect for the IOC. They had their own problems with the upcoming Olympic cycle where they had two very good bids from Paris and Los Angeles. And the fear was that if they didn't award the games to Paris then and there, they might not get them back. And so they kind of made a little compromise where they offered both games at the same time, which is unheard of, uh, to try and capture uh, bids that they were afraid would not come back. So even they recognized that maybe the Olympics uh, are on borrowed time now, too. They did you. And what a moment. I mean, that the IOC, could there have been a more powerful body here? Moshe, well, let's turn our attention to the Olympics here. What's done it? Is it just the tarnishing of it? Or again, is it the money and the fact that you can do other things to drag and get your name out there as a city or in a country? It's a little bit of both. It, it, for sure, it's cost. And unfortunately, when you have Beijing, when you have uh, so Chi hosting these events where price is no option, uh, you know, uh, no issue. Um, how many cities are looking at this saying, okay, now what are we going to do, right? We can't do it on the cheap because the IOC now accept, uh, expects this level exactly. of spending, <laughs> right? So, you know, at that point, then you've almost priced out of the market anybody from participating. But beyond that, uh, you know, you can go back 30 years. If you remember when the dream team, right? Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, uh, professionalizing a lot of these amateur athletics, uh, one of the things that they didn't foresee that they were changing was that uh, you now have that most of the people participating in the Olympics are no longer amateurs. They are professionals or semi-professionals. Mm -hmm. And they're now participating in month-long tours of which the Olympics is just one stop, right? When you have tennis in the Olympics, these tennis players are playing around the world all year. Same thing for golfers and things like that, right? Swimmers maybe have a shorter season, but they're also competing around the world uh, and multiple stops. And so, you know, the whole idea of the Olympics was to bring together amateur athletes under one umbrella because it was too expensive for them to have their own separate events. Uh, but now it's, it's become cheaper to travel, at least in real terms, that you know what? Why do we need to bring all these athletes together? Why do we need to create one huge set of facilities uh, when maybe uh, the host countries only care about some of those? I, I would probably guess that most Canadians would not be interested in things like weightlifting events. So why are we hosting it then? Why not let I, I know. I rode, I rode horses. I rode dressage for a long time. And also, <laughs> they, no, nobody watched it. It was only the families there. May I say it was one of the first events, though, in the original Olympics. And very, very difficult. Uh, cheers to dressage. Moshe, is this, um, as we've also seen here in these events, I, it's kind of bugged me. We There seemed to be a real push. It started in Barcelona to try to get into these fun events to drag people. Is that letting go of history or is that just economics? I, I think it's partly just keeping with the times, right? That uh, there are certain events that would have been extremely popular in 1896 that maybe don't carry as much weight and, and interest now. And so, you know, part of that is trying to stay modern. But part of it is recognizing that if, if your entire exercise now is to make money and you have to care about the taxpayers, then you better make sure that they're getting events that are going to be interesting to them or at least interesting to the host country, which is why we always had those uh, sports that the host country could uh, include within these competitions, maybe not for uh, the same level of metal, uh, but just to show that, hey, this is maybe something you'd want to consider. 
Moshe, you said something. I just want to follow up on it. And I thought it was interesting because as we talk about the money being spent on the Olympics, we know, as you referenced Beijing, that was a big event. I'm not sure social media could have done that for China. It was controversial. We said to ourselves, remember, oh, engage and China will, will come to join capitalism and democracy. Didn't work out. But there was such a controversy about whether or not China was using the Olympic Games. And if we are only, and we have these new ways that we're going and the money that these countries can make cannot be replicated, do we run a risk that those kind of countries will be taking these things over and then maybe everything will lose its importance? Yeah, and, and we've seen that. Sochi hosted the Winter Olympics uh, because uh, Putin wanted to show the world uh, the strength exactly. of Russia. Uh, Beijing wanted to host the Winter Olympics, even though they had no business doing so, uh, climatologically even. Um, Qatar hosted the World Cup uh, for the men six months ago uh, in terrible heat, uh, because not that nobody else wanted to, but because they wanted to project their power. And so we see this sport washing happening increasingly more. Uh, and of course, it, it's a controversy that just surfaced recently in professional golf, where essentially we saw a takeover of the PGA by a Saudi backed fund. And so I, I think these sporting events are increasingly becoming uh, a way to demonstrate strength or to demonstrate a particular political position. Uh, and of course, that becomes difficult then if ne you don't necessarily have a position you want to take uh, or you don't have anything that you necessarily want to say within the sports sphere. Moshe, I, I, too, I mean, the relationship between economics and money and business and sport is a tenuous one. I mean, it's risky. You mentioned some of the scandals. Then we have Hockey Canada. We're still waiting for the results of that investigation. When you add this and the money, is there maybe going to be... A realigning here. I can't imagine. Look at it. It was like a, a Taylor Swift deal when it comes to golf, the amalgamation. Yeah, it, there could be. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those interesting things with sports is that the amount of money that's put into sports is very, very small in comparison to, say, the amount of revenue that Walmart makes in a year, right? So uh, we would mm -hmm. be talking about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, billions of dollars for hosting an event like the Commonwealth Games. Uh, Walmart is turning close to a trillion dollars a year in revenue. So, you know, sports plays an outside role within our society. It's competition. It's something that's inherently human. And so when we see people able to compete at the highest level, clean or otherwise, it's fascinating to us. But yeah, it, it's one of those things that uh, if you have to spend that much money to try and, and get competition, uh, there's a point where people say, can't that money be used for other things? And, and do we really need it that badly? Uh, certainly when it comes to hosting. It's going to kill stuff, Moshe, isn't it? I mean, I've been uh, talking about my equestrian love of equestrian. I mean, there's big name sponsors connected to that, as we know. There are, especially in show jumping. There's the uh, the lure and the luxury of it and horses and all that. But some are just not going to make it. It's going to be a real challenge. Yeah, and that's the nature of limited resources, right? That everybody would like to have their hands on those resources, but there are choices that have to be made. And maybe some of those choices were delayed in the past because you could ignore the taxpayer's wishes or you could convince them that this was a good deal, even though most knew that it probably wasn't. Uh, but now that there's a little more scrutiny and, and now that there's a little more need for taxpayer money to be able to put on these events, 
you know, it can't be the private sector alone. And so at some point, uh, there are going to be trade-offs and there are going to be um, sporting events that are just too marginal and just impossible to make money and impossible to rely on charity that they disappear. I mentioned I'm in Atlantic Canada and PEI, and they they have just finished up with the Canadian Oyster Shucking Championship. So here we are talking about all the money that's being put into these big sports. And this is not that case. However, it is a very prestigious event. People come from all across the country here. And it is a festival for days. I'm staring out at Malpac Bay, and you've heard of Malpac Oysters, and they were the ones used in the in the festival. And when you are the winner, it is a grand honor across this country and off you go to the nationals we're going to congratulate mike osborne who is now the canadian oyster shucking champion mike good afternoon thank you for joining us good afternoon arlene thanks for having me on all right how do you feel uh, being the big winner here is this your first time winning it uh, this is my first time, although uh, it kind of feels a bit like a lifetime achievement award because I've been opening oysters for close to 20 years, but this is the, the first time I've taken down the big one. Did you know you had it? Is there a moment? I mean, we were just talking about sports and Olympics and Commonwealth game. I mean, was there a feeling during that shucking process where you thought you had the time and you also had the presentation? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there are there's so many quality shuckers that you're up against and i mean there's so much variance because you're just working with oysters and they're all different but yeah i did feel pretty confident with uh with my work when i was finished definitely mike you know a lot of people don't realize that this competition is such an intense deal and also a great honor isn't it i mean it's no small thing i i love oysters and have followed and, and know a lot of uh, champs and your life can change after this mike yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. We're I'm headed off to Ireland to compete in the World Oyster Shucking Championship to represent Canada. That's uh, the last weekend in September in Galway, Ireland. So, yeah, that's a huge opportunity for me. But the the festival itself, it's just such a great gathering of all sides of the oyster industry. You get the those of us who, who open them in restaurants generally in the cities, and then the, the oyster farmers who are out on the coast, you know, working so hard to, to produce great products. So it's just, we all come together and have a really great time. And talk about the industry growing. I mean, oysters are everywhere. I mean, they're one of the oldest, uh, oldest wonderful uh, culinary desires. However, now they're just in every restaurant across Canada, North America, and around the world. And Canadian oysters are right up there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, the huge thing is the, the advances in the, the science of farming the oysters. So, I mean, the quality is just so strong right now. And there's, there's never really an off season. I mean, the colder months are when the oysters are really at their best, but you can find great oysters all year round. So I think that sort of contributes to it. How do you train? It's very difficult. And I know this. I'm, you know, I eat a lot of oysters. My husband's not a bad oyster shucker. He shucked a little bit at Cars, which you would know, a very famous Cars oyster. But it is, it's very difficult. And it's almost like life, I can imagine. You got to look at the shell and decide where you're going to go in. What's your philosophy? Yeah, certainly there's, um, I mean, it it just takes a lot of repetition. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of pain, blood, sweat, and tears because the oysters do chew up your hands. 
But um, yeah, analyzing the, the shell, the shape of it, uh, the hinge where you put the knife in first, you know, you want to, you just want to find that sweet spot in them. It, it takes experience. That's really all it is. What do you think it is? What's the magic of oysters? Why, ha- why are they, do you think, as I said, one of the oldest culinary desires they are? I, I mean, flavor-wise, they're just so unique. There's nothing like it in terms of texture and, yeah, the, just the, the fresh, pure ocean flavors. I, myself, I love the way they look. And I, I don't really eat them that often, surprisingly, but I, I love why not? working with them. I mean, wow. I, I'll... I'll I'll taste them here and there so I can give some notes on, on if anyone's asking. But yeah, I, I love the way they look and organizing them on a plate of ice. It's just, it's a little bit like art. It is art. And I mean, people don't even realize the way you um, organize them, that that is a part of the presentation is not easy. All right. Well, I, it's so wonderful to have you. I got to ask you, because this is a national show, West or East, Mike? What's your oyster pre- preference? You just tell the <laughs> well, truth. Well, I, I work out on the West Coast, but I have to say <laughs> I do prefer the East Coast oysters. They're a little salty and brinier, and that just kind of suits me better. All right. That's good. We had to ask that national question. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.